go beyond just the early days. So we started with the early days, the calling of Moshe, which is the story of the snare. And I wanted to mention one uh, thing related to uh, Moshe's uh, re- resistance to taking on this mission. The story of the goal of the snare, burning bushes, chapters 3 and 4. So as we all know, Moshe has various uh, reasons, excuses or reasons, that he doesn't want to accept the mission to go back to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh and take the Jews out of Egypt and also to bring them into this land that God has promised to bring them to. That's essentially his, his mission. Speak to Paro, get them out, and then eventually bring them into the land of milk and honey. That's how God lays out the mission. And Moshe has various excuses why he feels he can't do it. Who am I to do it? I can't speak to Pharaoh. I can't speak to the people. I can't speak, period. I'm not a good talker. They're not going to believe God spoke to me in the first place. What is your name? Who are you anyway? All these excuses. Each one God is uh, responding to. So, for example, I can't talk, he says. Right? That's found in this translation, page 119. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a talker. I'm not an Ishtvarim, Moshe says. In verse number 10 of chapter 4, God's response is, Mi sam pelo adam, o mi osum ilem, o chereish o pikech o iver, aloan o chiyashem. He says, look, don't talk about, to me about speech. Who gives a person speech in the first place? Who makes a person able to speak or not? able to see or not see. Is it not I? So now go. I will be with you. Don't worry, you can't talk. I'm the one who's Anochi. The word Anochi appears at the end of verse 11. The word Anochi appears in verse 12. I'm going to help you to speak. So don't worry about the talking. So that sounds like a reasonable response. In verse 13, Vayomer bi Adonai shlachna bi but Moshe said, please God, send Biatishlach. Send the one that you will send. So here there's no reason, in other words, that the, this verse, he's not giving it reason. He's just saying straight out, get somebody else. Shachna Biatishlach. All the excuses have been, God responds to all the excuses. This is no reason, just get, get somebody else, which suggests to us that the real reason is not necessarily one that he has stated. Because all the reasons have been responded to. So when he gives three or four different reasons why he can't go, that's not the actual reason. The actual reason is he doesn't want to go for some other reason, which is unstated. So he says to God, send somebody else. So in verse 14, God gets angry. This we have in verse 14. Vayicharaf Hashem b'Moshe. Vayomer, Haro Aron Achicho Harivei. Yodati ki daber yedaberhu. V'gam hinehu yotzeg l'kmatecha. V'racha v'samach b'libo. V'dibarto elav v'samta et hadvarim b'fiv. V'onochi eye impicho v'impil. V'oreti etchem et asher ta'asun. V'diberhu l'cha ra'am. So 
So God's response, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, God's response seems to take into account all of Moshe's uh, questions. And the response, and God is angry, by Yicharaf Hashem, says, your brother Aaron, the Levi, I know that he's, he's, he's a very good talker. And therefore, and not only that, he's coming out to greet you. He's coming out to greet you. When he sees you, he'll be very happy. And you will speak to him. You put the words in his mouth. And I will be in your mouth and his mouth. I will teach you what to say. He will speak to the people. He will be your mouth. And you will be for him as Elohim. You will be for him as Elohim is an interesting word. Be, literally it means you'll be for him as a kind of God-like figure. A God. And take the staff, the staff that I mentioned before, take in your hand with which you will perform the, uh, the signs. So what is, what is, this is the this and Moshe goes, God is not asking any questions, God instructs him, but he, God is, one might say, exceeding to Moshe's two points that A, he needs something that will enable the people to believe him, to perform the miracles, and that is the Mateh in verse 17, but more than that, he needs, he can't go by himself. So take your brother Aaron, he, he will talk. And I, says God, as I promised, will be with you and with him. And I will instruct you, plural, what to say. And he will speak to the people. You'll be for him a mouth. Uh, you'll be for, he'll be your, your mouthpiece. He'll be your spoke, spokesperson. You'll be for him a God. So here, the point I want to make about these verses. One gets the impression, at least I get the impression, that um, that uh, God is not terribly happy with the idea of Aaron going. Aaron going in the story over here is not what God initially wants. That's clear. God wants Moshe to go alone. Just go. And go as my person and I will be with you. Go in faith. It's Moshe that raises all the objections. So at the end of it, God says to Moshe, Take your brother Aaron, your dati ki daber daber hu. I know that he's a, he's a very good talker, right? But it's clear from the whole story that God chose someone who who, who is who was not a talker. God didn't want someone who was a talker. So then the ex- acceptance of Aaron in this chapter seems to be, given all your objections, which God, which I'm very unhappy with, says God, I'm angry with you that you're saying this. Okay. But Aaron will go with you because he's a talker. So he's gonna, he'll, he'll be able to speak for you to the people. You can't relate to the people. He'll relate to the people. I will still be a guide. I'll be involved. And not only that, that's as far as that's concerned. As far as the other issue, where I said just to go in my name without miracles and wonders and magic, I, you don't want to do that. So take, take, take the staff. So in other words, what Moshe's done in effect seems to be to extract from God two major concessions, but if in, a, in a perfect world, it sounds like, in the story of the snare, Moshe would have gone alone without, without the staff. I think that's fairly clear. What's interesting is that this question of Aaron's role, when you read the, 
actually when you read the book of Shemot, when you read the Tadach, I would say, you don't get only one view. In other words, I think within the Torah itself, there are different views about Aaron and, and Moshe. One view emerges from the story of the burning bush. I think that's obvious. But there is another set of verses in which one can arrive at precisely the, a, a very different conclusion. And those are not verses that are found in chapter 3 and 4, but rather it's found in chapter, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where Moshe, Moshe goes back to God at the end of chapter 5 and says, I went to Egypt, I spoke to Paro, and uh, told him we want to serve God in the desert. And his response was, forget it, no vacations, no Shabbat, he says. On the contrary, on the contrary, you have to work uh, even harder to produce the same number of bricks, but I'm taking away all of the straw. So Moshe goes back to God. And Moshe complains, what have you done over here? You sent me to make things better, but you've made it worse. Lama Harioto, Lama there at the very end of chapter 5, on page 122, you made it worse. And not only that, Moshe and Aaron both, at the end of chapter 5, are verbally attacked by the leaders of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, of the people, of the Israelites. Shotrei B'nei Yisrael, the Shotrim, found them, found, found themselves in trouble because of this order, because they can't possibly do this. They can't produce the same number of bricks without the straw. And they're beaten for not producing the same number of, of, of bricks. So they encountered Moshe and Aaron in verse number 20. And they said to Moshe and Aaron, Yera Hashem Aleichem V'yishpot May God look upon you and punish you. Asher Hivashtem Et Reichem You made us look evil, loathsome. P'yenei Paro Uvenei Avadav Vatet Cherev B'yadam L'Hargenu He gave them an excuse to kill us. You're going in... What are you meddling for? Who asked you in the first place? So, therefore, they encountered the wrath of the Shotrim, they're called. In other words, the point being that, and this is an important point, there are already existing in, within the people leaders. The people have their own leaders. Moshe and Aaron, as his helpmate, are imposing themselves, as far as the leadership is concerned, through a new kind of leadership. So the, the, the present leaders resent this because the new leadership with all of their proclamations, do not take into account, from their perspective, the damage they're doing. You, you, you're number one, you're putting us, they're making two points to Moshe that are important. First of all, you made us look bad. We are being beaten. The truth is that the people, the leaders of the Jews, are beaten up because they can't produce the bricks. They're held responsible. And not only that, you gave them an excuse to kill us, being the people, so you've done two grave misdeeds. You've endangered us but you've also endangered all of the people. Pharaoh before could just straight out kill the Jews. He spoke to the midwives, throw them into the river, this and that, the newborns. Now just come and kill us because we are, we are not obeying their, their, their commands. We're trying to get out of work. We're shirkers. Right? So Moshe goes back to God with this, with this complaint. Why did you send me? Right? Moshe complains. From the moment I came to Paro to speak in your name, he made things worse and you didn't save the people. That's Moshe's complaint, which is a strong complaint. Then we have God's response in chapter 6. And we talked about a very important response where God explains to Moshe the nature of the covenantal commitment, what it means to be covenantal. 
It means to accept the suffering in the present for the, for the hopes of the future. So that, that's what God said. But Moshe didn't know that. Moshe only knew about God's plan to take them to a safe place. Moshe did not know about this whole idea of the covenant and the nature of the covenant. That's what God speaks about in chapter 6. That's actually very important in terms of Moshe's own development. It's a critical chapter. So that's it. That's what God says to Moshe. The key word in chapter 6, beginning of chapter 6, we discussed this in the previous sessions. The key words, the two key words, Ani Hashem. That's how it begins and how it ends. Starts with Ani Hashem in verse number 2 of chapter 6. At the end of the speech, verse number 8, Ani Hashem. In other words, going into the land in chapter 6, it's not that the land per se is important. It's that the land is the way that the people connect to God. Because you'd have to be a, you have your own place. You have to be free to fully connect to God. Because if you're not free, the presumption of the Bible is that when you're in exile, you're not free. You're living on someone else's agenda. That's the assumption. Whether it's Mitzrayim, whether it's Parasumadai, whether it's Bagel, it doesn't matter. Wherever you may be, they have a different set of values, so therefore you live on their agenda. So you can't be free, and therefore you can't serve God fully if you're in exile. That is the essential assumption of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Tanakh, so Tanakh assumes. It's a very interesting question. In this country, we don't understand that for the most part. In fact, quite the opposite. Most of the schools that I've seen spend all their time trying to explain to their students how being an American and being a Jew are essentially the same thing. That's, that's what I'm hearing. The values are essentially the same values. That's the claim. So it's actually, I think, not only a wrong claim, but a dangerous one in my view. That's another conversation that did not correct. There are points of departure between being a good American and being a good Jew. That's a very straightforward point. Anyway, but the Chumash, the Bible's clear. You can't be, a, you can't serve God fully if you're in Egypt. Not possible. Because the Egyptians make all kinds of demands because the culture is such. The book that is dedicated to that proposition and wrestles with it in a direct, open way is, um, is um, Megillah Esther. That's what Megillah Esther is actually about. It's a very simple point, Megillah Esther which is the presumption of Megillah Esther if I ever write the book, I'm working on it this is the main point of the book is to aid define the, the culture of, of Parasobada which is the world what, what is this culture actually about? it's a combination of Egypt on one hand and Bavo on the other and then the question is given the fact that the world is a certain way how can you live as a Jew? which is to say how can you have a moral how do you retain your moral compass? and B how do you retain your own identity? in a place which, which, which if you deviate from the so-called law you would put yourself in, in grave danger if you don't bow down to Haman as it were you're in danger if you contradict the king you're in danger so how is it possible actually that's what the Megillah is about how is it possible and if, if so how to establish to maintain your own identity in the face of the face of exile so that, that's the assumption in the Chumash this is a set of verses of enormous significance the Yechumish assumes that only in the land of Canaan which is your own land can you actually serve God fully unless you are a free person you can't be a true servant of God that's the assumption that's Ani Hashem that's what God says to Moshe Moshe didn't know that Moshe knew about the milk and the honey 
because God told him in chapter 3 that he knew he knew about not being beaten up I'll take them to a place where they're free it's a good land it's a broad land you can make your choices it's a land where powerful nations live it's a wealthy place it's a healthy place it's a good place that. that's what God is telling Moshe in chapter 3 and 4 but in chapter 6 God doesn't say anything of milk and honey the land of your sojournings the land where Abraham, Isaac and Jacob wandered the land that I swore to give I imposed my name the holy land that's chapter 6 that's the vision and the covenantal land and the covenantal land means the covenant of the Reshit is Avram Yisrael Yaakov they never actually saw the realization of the promise they got the promise but they never saw it realized you are you Moshe are the son of Avram Yisrael and Yaakov that's the nature of these verses nothing's more central to the story of Moshe of the Chumash this is basic it ends in verse number 8 and now we have verses 9 through verse number 13 for starters and this is actually very interesting it says Yisrael. Moshe said this, these words to Bnei Yisrael Moshe told over as we would say all that God had told him but the people did not hear Moshe they didn't hear or obey or fully comprehend because of the crushing cruel bondage and their spirits were crushed they couldn't hear what he was saying Chumash simply reports that when Moshe speaks to the people in this verse the people are not understanding what he's saying they're not capable of hearing him and the reason the Chumash gives is shortness of breath means they don't have the you know we understand it even in a very simple way but sometimes when you very feel under a lot of pressure you can actually concentrate here what the person is saying because you don't have time to think about it to really to, to take it in and you're under all kinds of extreme time pressures and also you're being, your spirit is crushed and you're being beaten so the Moshe according to this version Moshe tells them everything in chapter 6 but they're not hearing it not, not comprehending it now in verse number 10 Moshe, God said to Moshe go unto Pharaoh the king of Egypt and he will send Israel from his land and Moshe spoke to God saying look here hey look here the Israelites don't, don't, don't listen to me when I speak to them and how will Pharaoh listen to me he says if the Jews who are being oppressed and I tell them they, can, they have deliverance they're not going to listen to me how will Pharaoh listen to me and not only that I am man, a man of impeded speech they translate I'm circumcised impeded speech sounds very much what Moshe said earlier in the verses we began with this morning he repeats the same argument in chapter 6 and there's no response God doesn't answer him in chapter 6 so God spoke to Moses and Aaron he commanded them to B'nai Israel. he one might say appointed them right into Pharaoh to take the Jews out of Egypt so the question 
this is where the this is where the Bible critics are coming from, by the way. What what is this? Sounds like the same story, actually. Repeated in a different form, as if this doesn't know from the first story. I mean, that's what it sounds like. And Moshe says the same thing. And over here, in in the story of the snap, I want to make another point about this, which is that in the story over here. God doesn't get angry with Moshe at all. It's not angry. Moshe's point in this particular case, actually, in this, I would say, version number two, is what I believe it is. It is version number two. I mean, it's a different version of the story. In this case, God doesn't get angry at all. God doesn't scream at There says God was angry at Moses. God's not angry at Moses here. And why would God be angry at Moses? What he says makes perfect sense. You told me to go speak to the people. I spoke to the people. I explained everything. The covenant is so beautiful. But they didn't listen to what I said. They don't, they don't hear me. Now you want me to go to Pharaoh? How can I go to Pharaoh? How, even if my own Jews are, are, aren't listening to me. Is Pharaoh going to listen? Here's very interesting. I have um, an uncircumcised speech. It's a very peculiar expression. And what it, maybe what it means is, maybe this is a drush, I don't know. But maybe what he's saying is, how can I even speak to, to Pharaoh? In other words, what am I going to say to Pharaoh? I represent the Jewish people and I want you to free them. Pharaoh would say, you represent nobody. People don't, don't, you don't represent anybody. You represent yourself, right? Because the Jewish people aren't even listening to you. What do you mean the Jewish people? How, how can I go as a representative of the Jewish people? If in fact, when I spoke to them, Lo Shamu El Moshe, they didn't listen to me. So who are you? You have no standing. <coughs> so Moshe says it's totally legitimate. And verse number 13 then, God spoke to Moses and Aaron. Then we have another very strange thing. Vayitzavim El Bnei Yisrael. Sounds like he appoints them. He commands them to the children of Israel. V'yel Parol Melech Yisrael. To both. To to be the to direct them towards Israel and Pharaoh, we all see it. Bnei Israel, Eretz Mitzrayim. What God seems to be saying is, okay, your point is well taken. So we have to have a two-pronged attack. We have to command you to Israel, or we have to command you to Pharaoh. And in order to do that, if you can't do it by yourself, obviously, you said you are aroused for time. So therefore, God is commanding Aaron and, Mo- and, and Moshe both, right? Moshe Biel Aaron. Now it's clear that the, the verse here presumes that we know who Aaron is. It's not a name we haven't heard before. So it sounds like it presumes knowledge of Aaron. Even though he hasn't been introduced except for the story of the snake. It's not introduced to us. But here God commands. And now what's even more striking is suddenly in verse number 14 we have a genealogy. Like no other genealogy in the Bible, the genea- these are these are the heads of their respective tribes, right? Clans. Starts with the sons of Reuven. So first we have the, the, the genealogy of Reuven, beginning in verse number fourteen. Verse fifteen we have Shimon. Shimon is verse number fifteen. Verse sixteen we have Levi. That's the correct order of their births: Reuven, Shimon, Levi. When it gets to Levi, it does not confine itself to only verse number sixteen. You have verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, and probably 27 as well. 
you have a whole bunch of verses which focus exclusively on Levi and not only does it focus exclusively on Levi because all ten verses on Levi one on Ruvain, one on Shibon ten on Levi and the next tribe, Yehuda zero there's no more tribes it only takes us up to Levi the genealogy is cut short, is truncated when it gets to Levi because when it gets to Levi it mentions two people that it's getting to both in verse number uh, 26 right 26 who are Ronu Moshe right in other words Moses and Aaron are born in verse number 20 right Amram married his aunt it says Vatelo with Aaron and Moshe two sons Aaron and Moses and then in verse number 26 it says who are Ronu Moshe this is Aaron and Moses that God said to them Take out the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Al-Sivotam, troop by troop. First 27, Hema Amadabrim Apomelech Mitzrayim, Lotsiyah Pnei Yisrael Mi Mitzrayim, Humosheh These are the ones who speak to Pharaoh to take the Israelites out of Egypt. Right? This is Moses and Aaron. So notice verse 26 and 27 are interesting for two reasons. First of all, 26 says, this is Aaron and Moses that God instructed to take the Jews out of Egypt. And 27 says, these are the ones that God said, speak to Pharaoh, right? To take them out, send them out of Egypt. So in 26, the directive was to the Jews, and 27 was to Pharaoh. 26 begins, this is Aaron and Moses. 27 ended, um, this is Moses and Aaron. One gets the impression, obviously, from these verses, that it's a full partnership. There's no sense at all in these psukim that I read just now, that Aaron is someone who I don't really want him but if you want to take him not at all actually in these verses this is the Moshe. these are the ones plural that God said speak to Israel these are the ones plural that God said speak to uh, to, 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 to Paro so we have it strikes me I would call it a contradiction in the Chomish it's a contradiction of sorts it's a completely different focus in one story it's clear that God wants only Moses. And I would say, even the verse, your brother Aaron, he's a very good talker. Daber you, daber who? It's basically a, uh, it's not a compliment. It's not, it's not a compliment. Not at all. In the second story, though, in the second story, Moshe goes to God with a completely legitimate complaint. I did speak to them. They're not listening. They don't listen to me. How can I go to speak to Pharaoh? And he aroused for time. And then, God says, Okay, I command you in Vayitzavim El Bnei Yisrael. I command you too. I give you an assignment. Two of you, plural, both to do, to speak to the Jews and speak to Pharaoh. So I was thinking, it's actually very interesting. I think throughout the Bible we have this. Certainly, Aaron in many places in the Bible is not, mostly, is not considered to be sort of a, you know, I don't really want him, whatever. In most of the stories, we have it in the Psalms. Moshe v'yaron v'cholanov u'shmuel v'koreh kabbalat Shabbat. Moshe, Moses and Aaron among his, his kohanim, his God's ministers, u'shmuel v'koreh shemo, and Samuel cries out to God, koreh mel Hashem name. So the examples of Moshe v'yaron v'cholanov that Moses is called the Kohen, actually. 
Moses and Aaron, God's priests. It's very striking. We think of Aaron the priest, but there is called Moshe and Aaron Bechoanav, and it connects Samuel to them. These are people that call out to God, and God will answer them. There's no intimation in that verse that Aaron is anything less than Moses. He's Moses' partner. The two work together. They're, they're different people. One is the visionary, perhaps. The other is the one who can articulate the vision. But they're partners. That's the sense you get over here in these verses. And by the way, I would say something else. That these verses in chapter 6, in which Aaron seems to be a full partner, if not full, full partner, he's certainly not just an afterthought. That's for sure. And yes, Moses is still the main player here. But Aaron is a very critical role. That these verses, which focus on, on the tribe of Levi, is very interesting. We have no other such genealogy in the entire Bible. Where you go, you, stop, you have three tribes and you stop. And it's obvious, even the three tribes that you have, only one of them really matters. The first two tribes are only get a grand total of, of one verse. So it's as if the Torah is saying, Let's, I'll give you the genealogy, a little bit on Reuben, a little on Shimon, now with Levi, they expand and expand and they stop. There's no reason to go further. Now notice that in the genealogy, there's something else very curious, that in the genealogy, beginning in verse 14, and up to it, including verse number 27, right? Uh, that, and we'll get to this in one second. Get to this in one second, continuing with Aaron. But notice that in this genealogy, it's not just the names. This genealogy is very interesting, has several features that we find no other place. For example, for example, in this so-called genealogy, you have the number of years that so-and-so lives. <coughs> right? These are the sons, these are the names of the sons of Levi in verse number 16. And the years of Levi's life were 137. Levi lived 137 years. Just Levi it mentions. Then it goes on. Levi had various children. One was named Kahat. And Kahat lived 133 years. Then it goes on, and it tells us about the children of Kahat. One of them is Amram. And it says that Amram lived 137 years. And then it goes on, right? Uh, let's see, one second. And later on, we'll get to this later on in verse number 7. It says, Moses and Aaron did what God commanded them. Of chapter 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did what God commanded them to do. And verse number 7. And Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is curious beyond belief. So the text singles out only Levi, Kahat, Amram, Moshe and Aaron and gives the, the number of years, or either the years they lived, or how old they were when they began the mission of talking to Pharaoh. Notice, by the way, that once again, Aaron is mentioned the same as Moses. Moses is 80, and Aaron is 83. In fact, I would say even more interesting than Moses being 80, is Aaron being 83, because 80 is, is, not, is a, sort of a natural number. 40 is a generation. So for, the book of Judges, 40 and 40 and 40, so it's 80... Like this 20. But 83 is an odd number. But he's older. He's older, that's right. He's the older brother, that's important. That's part of it. 
But the number 83 is significant. Now, the point is, before we even try to understand this, I'm not sure I understand it. I can tell you what, what, what Kasuto said, though, a very interesting thing about these numbers. But the point is, obviously there's some significance to these numbers. And it's only these people, no one else. This particular line, Levi, Kahat, Amram, Moshe, and Aram. That's the line that the Chumash is signaling out. But what do the numbers signify? Yes? But when I'm thinking, and I don't want to offend anyone, don't worry about that. The second version is that the Levites and, and Aaron was the father of the Kohen, right? Right. That's the temple. True. So it's, it's, it, it, I think it has to do with the temple. And I don't want to say why that, you know, how did that second version. I feel it all comes from God, but. When it came from God. Oh, okay, fine. But, but let's not worry about it. I'm not worried about I that. Want to hurt, I don't want to offend anyone. But uh, really, Aaron and uh, Aaron was the first Kohen, right? And the Levites, true. well, really the Kohen and the Levites. That's true, but it doesn't actually, in other words. I mean, later they said the Levites did the singing and all that, but that was a later thing. No, no, that Aaron is the Kohen is clear. He yeah. becomes the high priest. Yes. That's yes. that's obvious. So that the Chumash is you're saying the Chumash is suggesting, emphasizing the here in this particular set of verses, the significance of Aaron, because the Chumash wants to focus in on the significance of the uh, of the temple. And the fact of the matter is, whatever explanation you give, what you're hinting at, I suppose, is the authorship or whatever. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, the book of Exodus ends with ends ends with ends with the Mishkan. About 40% of the book is dedicated to the Mishkan. So it would make total sense if Aaron is the chief person of the Mishkan, the architect of the Mishkan, it would make total sense to focus in on Aaron in these set of verses. Okay, I'm simply pointing out that in terms of the mission, because there is no mention here of any Mishkan. It's mentioned of, that's not mentioned over here. In terms of the Mishkan, we have, in terms of the mission of the Mishkan, we have two different stories in one book, just a couple of chapters apart, well, I think one gets the impression, I'm not saying that we can't necessarily resolve the two, if there are attempts to resolve them, but it's not a matter of resolving the facts, it's a matter of, of the, the focus. In the Chumash, in this particular set of verses, one does not get the impression that Aaron is simply an afterthought thrown in there because Moshe is reluctant to go himself. Not at all. It sounds like there's a partnership between the two of them, and I want to spell it out. By the way, there's another very interesting feature of this genealogy, which we virtually don't have any other place, which is in this particular genealogy, it's unusual, usually genealogies, the women are never mentioned. There's no mention of women at all in the genealogies. But over here, it's very curious that we have, first of all, Amram, Moses' father, marries Yochevet. Even more curious is that he says she is his aunt. Though the Torah later on in the Torah is actually forbidden. It's one of the incestuous relationships to marry your aunt. That's number one. But in any event, and then even more strangely, it says in verse number 23 that Aaron married Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, the sister of Nachshon. Right? And then in verse 25, Elazar ben Aaron married, took from the daughters of Putiel a wife, and she bore him Pinchas. We have three different verses in this genealogy. I don't think any place in the Bible except here. That actually the Torah singled out not just the men, which is typically only the men, but in this case, 
three, three marriages are cited with the name of the, of the mother, not just the name of the father. That's a, very unusual. It's an unusual ge- genealogy. There's nothing like it elsewhere. Now, here's the point I want to make about... I'll get to what's I, this, what's I, what, what do you want to say? Speak up. Yes. Close. 137, 133. Right. Let me, let me just mention the number of years. I'll mention what Kasuto... I have no wisdom here about the number. I'll mention what Kasuto says, which is very interesting. I'm not fully convinced, but I'll tell you what he says. Kasuto says the following. He says that... First of all, he starts with the following. Kasuto has a whole discussion about the biblical number of years that people live. But what is it actually about? He makes the claim, his main, his main claim is that the number system of the Torah, maybe the Bible, but the Torah for sure, is based on the number 60. That's his claim. Which is the Babylonian number, 60. So he says, based on the kind of number 60 is a very critical number in understanding the number of years. So 60 is like the major... So he says this the following. He says, if we presume that the Torah gives us the number of years of Levi and of Amram, and of Kahat, Levi, Kahat, Amram, Moses, and Aaron. Now let us, Levi, we know, he says, was not born in the land of Egypt. Because Levi comes down to Egypt at the time in the, in the Joseph story. But the Torah never tells us how old Levi is when Levi comes down. We have no idea. So he says, let's assume that we subtract. We can't say Levi lived his whole life in Egypt. He lived part of his life in Egypt. You can probably try to make some kind of calculations, but you can't actually figure out exactly. So he says, Levi lived how many years? 137, I think, right? Levi lived 137 years. Let's see if this is right. I haven't seen it recently. Let's see if it's right. So let's subtract from, let's subtract what is, for the, what is in the number of years, the, ge- the genealogies, the core piece of time. Let's say he came down at age 60. Let's subtract 60 years from Levi's life. If you subtract 60 years from Levi's life, so he lives in the land of Egypt for 77 years. Okay. Now his son Kahad lives 133 years. Correct? Yes. Yeah. So what, 133 and 77. That's what, 200 and, 210? 133, 210. 210. Now, Amram lives 130... 100, no, no, no. Amram, Amram, Amram lives how many? A hundred and thirty-seven. One thirty-seven. One thirty-seven and two ten. Three hundred and forty-seven. How old are they when they stand before Pharaoh? Moses is eighty. Okay, but his brother is eighty-three. So how old? They had eighty-three to three forty-seven. They had eighty-three to three forty-seven. To four forty-seven. 347 and 83. Right, 347. 430 years. The verse in Exodus says, The number of years the Jews were in the land of Egypt, says the Chumash. In last week's Torah reading, 430 years. So here's, here's what Kasuto says. He says, the makes the following observation, which is actually a very interesting observation. He says, Of course, he says, we understand that it's not actually 430 years because one is not born the day the other one dies. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap, right? Gotta be. Nonetheless, he says, nonetheless, 
he makes the following argument. Nonetheless, first of all, nonetheless, it's true to say that the, that the, that there are if you take these people that there are this number of years of suffering because each person's suffering is actually unique to that person. That's actually a very interesting point. The person who made that point, not about this at all, but in a totally different context, when I first encountered it was uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis talks about this. You can't actually add the suffering up, he says, because everybody suffers in their own way. And you can't say, you can't say, well, there were 200 years of suffering. Not really, because everybody suffered their whole life. So, Kasuto's point is that the this weird business of the years, he claims, is a way to arrive at the number 430, which is exactly the number that the Chumash says later are the years of suffering that the Jewish people had in the land of Egypt, even though we know that there's no possible way it could actually be 430 years. How's that possible? It's only four, three generations of suffering. Fourth generation is only there for part of the time, so that's not possible. But nonetheless, the Torah man- manipulates it in such a way, says Kasuto, that we arrive at the number 430. I'm not sure he's right, but I will say the following. It's incredibly clever, I think. Who would think of such a thing? It's amazing, actually. So that's, that's what Kasuto says about the years. Which is why the Chumash gives you the 83 years for Aaron. 83 gets you to 430. Moses will get you to 427. That's what Kasuto says. In any event, this is actually very interesting, but it's also interesting that if Kasuto is correct, that, the, that the, the, the experience that the Chumash is focusing on, according to Kasuto, is the experience of the tribe of, tribe of Levi. Which is interesting because in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the rabbinic tradition, there's a whole tradition that the tribe of Levi, Dafko, would have slaves. There's the whole tradition. And here with Kasuto's point is that when the Chumash speaks about the suffering in Egypt and the slavery in Egypt, the number of years there in Egypt, it focuses primarily on the tribe of Levi. In any event, just wanted to say one more point about this, this second version of Moses and Aaron. After, we, after the Chumash gives us the whole genealogy, this is Aaron and Moses, this is Moses and Aaron, God commanded them. Now we have verse 29. God said to Moses, I am God. There's another very strange verse. God said to Moshe, it sounds like, a, what do you mean Moshe? We just, we just mentioned Moses and Aaron. Now the Chumash seems to go back. God said to Moshe, I am God, Ni Hashem, which is what God said earlier in the beginning of chapter 6, I am God, go and speak to Pharaoh. By Yomar Moshe, Lufnei Hashem, but Moses said, Heinani Arav Svatayim, Elai Paro. It repeats exactly what the Chumash says earlier in verse number 10, right? Verse 10 and 11, 12, 13. It's exactly the same thing. Go to speak. Says Moshe, how can I speak to Paro? And he aroused Matayim. Right? Here God, so in that, so in previously, or said God commanded Moses and Aaron. Now in verse number, chapter 7, the Chumash seems to go back to that and to explicate more what God said to Moshe. Behold, I have made you a God unto Pharaoh. And Aaron will be your prophet. It's actually different. It's not just earlier, 
when Yod said in chapter, let's say the burning bush episode. Moses says, I can't get somebody else. I'm not a talker. Your brother Aaron, he's a very good talker. Daber Daber who? He's a good speaker. Right? He will, you, you will be for him, right? Let's find that verse. You will be for him. You will place the words, right? You will speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with you and him, with your mouth and his, right? And I will tell you what to do. He will speak for you to the people. He will be your mouth, the path. This is chapter 4, verses 16. And you will be for him a God. That is similar but not identical to what we now have in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Behold, I have made you an Elohim to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. So what strikes us is the difference between saying it's similar but different to what we have earlier. Is the difference between saying you will tell him what to say and he will speak for you. That's one thing. Okay? But this here, the word in the Viecha is very striking. The whole thing is striking. You will be a God, Elohim. He will be your, 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 your prophet. So it strikes me that there's a difference between the two, between the two things. Between the two things. Well, what is the role of the prophet? The, yeah, yeah. Isn't the prophet the one who usually tells the people what to do? That's true. Right. But what is the prophet? It strikes me that the two kinds not agree. Right? In other words, the prophet is it's a much... When you say someone's yeah, a prophet... To back to life, it's also about... It's, 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 when you, someone is a... There's a difference, let's say, that Talmud speaks about when they used to give the class and they had to have their microphones. Right? So they would read the Torah or give a, a drasha, let's say. Somebody would have to translate it. A turgamon. Someone would do targum. Would translate with... Someone would give a class and somebody else would, would, would translate the class. A maturgamon. Now the maturgamon clear from the group is not just a person who has a loud voice and is... Uh, Targum is a very tricky business, actually. Translation is a tricky business. Because every translation, we, know, we all know this, yeah. it's not just in you translating something. There are ten different translations. Translation, to some extent, is actually interpretation. Every translator is an interpreter. And it strikes me that what the Chumash is saying in these two, in these two versions, they're very different, actually. In the first version, Moses says to God, I'm not a good talker. You know, I'm not a good orator. I'm not a good speaker. So God says, okay, you're not a good talker. I, I don't care. Who, who, who made speech anyway? Just go, I'll help you out. Get somebody else. God gets angry. Okay, fine. Aaron's a good talker. He's a, he's a talker. You take him. That's one thing. But in the second story, which is Moses, in, interestingly, here Moses uses a different word, aral svatayim. In the first case, he didn't use the word aral svatayim. He used the word kvad peh, heavy of mouth, kvad peh, kvad roshon. Here he uses the term aral svatayim, arel, uncircumcised. Strikes me, actually, that it means something else. Because they're, in other words, sometimes, sometimes you teach a class, let's say, and no one understands what you're saying. So there could be two different reasons. Usually it's because you're not very articulate. Usually it's because 
in the transmission of what you're trying to say, you're unclear. Maybe you don't understand it yourself. So you can't really formulate it properly. Okay? That's sometimes. Sometimes someone gives a class or says something and it's coming and people don't understand it because the presuppositions of the person are so different, are so radically different. The assumptions are so radically different. The words are clear. Everybody understands every word. I can't understand what the guy's saying. It doesn't make any sense. It's coming from a radically different place. And then you need someone else to interpret what the person is, is trying to do. Because no, no one can actually understand it. Because in their experience, it bears no relation to anything that they've ever experienced. And then the person who can come in and to explain that is not just the one to say the words. The words are not going to help you. It's someone who actually can, knows how to convey a message to people. They can't understand the guy who's, 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 who's saying what he's saying. But someone else comes in to actually interpret what the person is saying. It strikes me that those, that's the distinction between the first version and the second version. What Moses talks about the first time is, I'm not a good talker. I'm Maybe I'm a stammerer, I'm a stutterer, I'm not a good speaker, whatever. I'm boring when I talk, who knows, whatever it is. Oh, you're not a good speaker, you're not an orator. I need orators. I can't do it. Okay, your brother, he's a very good talker. He knows how to talk, he's great. That's, that's the first time. But that's Kvad Peh. Aral Svatayim strikes me, what's an Aral? Something which is unformed. I'm a person with, with, with unformed mouth, which means they're not going to understand what I'm saying. Not because I'm not a good speaker. Because what I'm trying to say to them, trying to explain to them, they're not going to understand what I'm saying. Because we're, we're talking on different levels over here. Moses operates on one level, and the people operate on a different level. Moses has a vision which bears no relationship to their experience. A bunch of slaves. He's talking about freedom and, 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 and commitment and responsibility and covenant. What? We're not going to get that. So there we need a, a prophet. Because what the prophet can do is, the prophet hears what God is, God is saying, and the prophet tries to convey to the people the message that God is saying, using his own language. No two prophets prophesy, says the Gemara, with the same language, with the same style. Because every situation is different. It strikes me that Aaron's role in the second story is not just, a, not just somebody who's, you know, who talks, who says nice words. The second, the Navi is not that. The Navi is somebody who speaks in God's name, but delivers his own personal message. The Navi's message is always personal. Isaiah the prophet doesn't speak as Jeremiah the prophet speaks. They're talking a different language. They're, you know... So what the Gemara says about Yechezkel and about Yishayel, they both saw the same thing. Isaiah and Yechezkel saw the same vision. Yechezkel was the vision at the beginning of Yechezkel and the chariot vision, the mystical vision of Yechezkel. And Isaiah also had a vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Says the Gemara, don't take it literally, but the thought is important, they saw the same thing. How can it be the same thing? One is a whole mystical elaboration. Here is a couple of verses. They saw the same thing, but they experienced it differently. Coming from different places. So it strikes me that the, the, the Aaron of chapter 7, Arona Chicha, Yen Echa, is not just translating in a narrow sense, but Aaron the prophet. That, to me, that's a very different, different picture. And it picks up on something about Moshe, which is very true, I think, both in the Chumash and in, in our tradition. 
that Moshe is someone who's very far removed from the people. He's, he doesn't have their experience. He doesn't understand where they're at, actually. And what Aaron is able to do is to talk to people where they are. He's able to translate, or tries to translate the message into of someone who's so different into a language that people can understand. That's a different situation. Yes, please. Does he maybe feel inauthentic as a Hebrew because he grew up with the Egyptians? Like maybe he feels caught between two worlds and not part of the covenant in a certain way? Certainly possible. We know that the people feel that way. The first time Moses goes out, mm-hmm. the, the people say to Moses, who made you the leader anyway? Right. You're going to kill us the way you killed the Egyptian? I mean, not talking their language mm-hmm. may very well be the fact that he doesn't grow up with them. Pharaoh's daughter is his mother, basically. It's true that the text never identifies him as Pharaoh's son. That's true. But he is Pharaoh's daughter's child, one way or another. So, potentially his experience, I presume, of growing up in that kind of environment, from the people's perspective, certainly, maybe from his own perspective, sets him apart. But maybe, this, maybe this whole genealogy here is, is a lot for Moshe. Right. Understand. You know, where he comes from. That's right. Now, I would say something else about the... Thanks for reminding me of something else about the genealogy. Because I'll take a second. I want to respond to Nephi's point about the genealogy. Genealogy is these... Right? This genealogy begins... This is... Elo Moshe Beit Avotam. Basically, Elo Shemot B'nei Levi. These are the names. Elo Shemot in verse number 16. Elo Shemot... In chapter six, verse sixteen, exactly how the book is how the book begins. Yeah. So I would formulate it this way: the story of Moses to this point is about somebody who is in search of his own of his own identity. We have to remember that the Chumash up to the snare tells us about essentially Moses' mother, who nurses him, Pharaoh's daughter who adopts him, and Moses' sister, who like a Hagar is watching over him. He's a man who has three different mothers, three different women in his life. Two mothers, maybe three. He has an older sister, and two women who are his mother. But where's his father? So the point that we made in terms of the snail, that when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, the first words out of God's mouth are, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of your father. You have to remember that the Torah is at its core a patriarchal book. Any way we slice it. The names typically only names of the men. In other words, the point is, I am the, I am the God of your father means for Moshe, this is who you are. You, you may think you have no father, but you have a father. I'll tell you who your father is. You have three fathers, actually. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now let me explain to you what that means, that you have a father. Why are you like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How are you their son? Not literally their son, but you are spiritually their son in two ways. In chapter 3, because, I, I, because, I, because we are talking to each other. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all spoke to God and God spoke to them. That's what singles them out. That's chapter 3. Chapter 6, God added something very important. And I'll tell you the real truth. Why you are the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because I made a, I made a covenant with them. I made them promises. And they believed in my promise. And they never realized the promise. The promise was to possess a land. They never realized that promise. And you are like them. Because I make many promises to you. You set up redemption for others. You yourself will never, never experience redemption. You're going to die in the desert. We know this from right from these verses. You're not going to make it. 
But that's make that you. This is who you are. This is your identity. And now in chapter six, we have an interesting thing. Suddenly, we have a whole bunch of names. This is Moses and Aaron. This is Aaron and Moses, the father, the grandfather, the great grandfather. In a book, when which begins with the names, but in chapter two there are no names. Moses' birth is a chapter, chapter two of Exodus, as we pointed out, and others have pointed out as well. There are no names. A man went from the house of Levi. He married a woman from the house of Levi. It's Amram and it's Yochev. There's no name. And they have a boy. A child is born. He's not named. And Pharaoh's daughter takes him out of the water. Not named. And the sister is watching. She's not named. We know all the names later. And, she, and then the sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, maybe I'll get the woman to nurse the child. Okay, I'll pay for it. Goes home to his mother. She doesn't name him. Only at the end of the chapter, when he goes back to Pharaoh's daughter, she gives him a name, Moshe. So, what is that about? It's a chapter where the Chumash Dafka doesn't give you names. The book begins with these are the names. It means in the course of exile and suffering, you lose your identity. Moses doesn't have his own identity either. He has only the mothers. He has, doesn't have the father. And now God said to Moshe, I'm going to explain to you who you actually are. You are the covenantal child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the beginning of chapter 6. So it continues, these are the names. But that now he has name. Now he has an identity. Because he knows who he is. So one might say that Moses, in his, the early years in the text, it's the search for Moses' identity. One might even add, but in order for Moshe to tell the people who they are, he has to first learn who Moses himself is. Which is why in chapter 3, when Moses asks God, what is your name? What is your identity? God says to Moses, I am that I am but let me tell you who, what to tell the people they're going to ask you tell them I am the God of their father the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob which is parallel to what God said to Moses in the beginning of chapter 3 I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac and Jacob so the two things go hand in hand in order to tell them who, their father, who, they, who they are their identity you have to know who you are but I'm telling you you are the son of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and they are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means additionally something else very important, that you are brothers. Now this is actually a very important point, and I wanted to make that point in connection with Moses and Aaron. The version that we have before us in chapter 6 and 7 is that Moses and Aaron are, are full partners in this, in this endeavor. One does not get the I'm not saying Moses doesn't have a slightly higher station. Obviously he does. But Aaron is not just the, the tag-along guy. Aaron is, in the words of the Torah, he shall be your, your, your Navi, which is not a small thing. You will be for him an Elohim. He is your Navi. That's a big thing. He's the, one who could, he's the one who understands your message. He will understand what you're trying to do. He will convey it to people in a way that hopefully they will understand it. It never fully works, by the way, because you lose something always in, uh, in uh, translation. Always something's lost in translation. You can never reproduce the original fully. Okay, that's true. Nonetheless, there's a greater value, and some are better at reproducing than others. The great prophets are able to articulate very well the message. So that's the point. But there's something else interesting about this model of Moses and Aaron, which is brothers. The idea of brothers then becomes, at the very beginning of Sefer Shemot, 
very central, and I would say that at least in these verses, one gets the sense that brothers can work together very well. In fact, not just in these verses, we saw it even earlier in the in Sefer Shemot, in terms of not his brother, but Moses' sister. Moses' sister is watching out for him and protecting him and caring for him and enabling Moses to return to his, to, to his natural mother. So one like Sefer Breshit, which ended with, yeah, okay, there's a rapprochement and reconciliation of Joseph and the brothers, but fundamentally, Sefer Breshit is focusing on the difficulty of siblings, you know, functioning together. Focus on the competition and the hostility and often the danger that one sib, you know, sets up for the next. Sefer Shemot begins in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. One gets the impression that the brotherly relationship or the brother-sister relationship is very, very positive. And I don't think it's an accident that the book starts this way because Sefer Shemot is fundamentally about the nation. That's what Sefer Shemot's about. It's not about the family, primarily. It's about the nation, and it sees the family as the building blocks for, 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 for the nation. So, this idea that we came down to Egypt as a bunch of people, or maybe tribes or, or family members, we had a household, we had a bayit, and we had names. And this gets lost in the experience of slavery. Now we have to, to somehow to get that all back again. I think that's significant. And the, the Paschal sacrifice, which is essentially a family sacrifice, also becomes the first national sacrifice. So the family has a building block towards the nation. So the Chumash sets up the possibility of the family as two brothers who function fully together. That's very positive. It means it's possible to build on that, to build a nation out of these families. That's what the Sefer Shemot is doing. For Sigrid, and then you, know, so you have something to say, and then, yeah. Yeah, I was um, disturbed by God saying, I place you in the role of God to Pharaoh. Um, and I think right, so, uh, right, it is very striking. So it's a God, obviously. The word Elohim, I, we can say the following. The word Elohim does not always mean God. But I mean, I actually agree with you. The word Elohim, the tradition, Jewish tradition, spends a fair amount of time trying to figure out what Elohim means, and they want they, the argument is that sometimes the word Elohim is borrowed from God. For example, according to the Talmud, sometimes Elohim can mean, can mean judges. For the simple reason that the ultimate judge is God, sometimes human beings can play God, and so therefore Elohim is a loan word, one might say, which refers sometimes to leadership, to judges, to powerful people, etc. The counter-argument, which I hear you making, and I like it, at the end of the day, it's still striking that God used the word Elohim to Pharaoh. I don't, it can't be an accident. One could say that, and I think this is actually a true point in terms of your comment, that Pharaoh sees himself as a kind of God. That's clear. Pharaoh sees himself as in control, and the story of the Exodus is really a struggle between Pharaoh on one hand and God on the other. So when, when God says to Moshe, you will be an Elohim unto Pharaoh, what God is saying in effect is, as far as, far as Pharaoh is concerned, he will see you this way. You have to understand, when you go to Pharaoh, and that going is Moses, the individual person, he's not going to see it this way. He sees it as a struggle between gods. So in effect, 
in effect, from Pharaoh's standpoint, I make you an Elohim, which means I make you a counter to Pharaoh. You are going to Pharaoh as Pharaoh's counter. From Pharaoh's perspective, who can be Pharaoh's counter? Are we some other God? Are we a different God? So from Pharaoh's perspective, I make you an Elohim. He's not suggesting, however, I think the Chumash in general is very averse to suggesting, so with the tradition, our tradition is totally averse to suggesting that Moses is anything more than just a person. There was no intimation, as far as I can read in the Chumash, ever suggesting that Moshe is somehow a God. I don't think that's accurate. I think the Chumash is very clear on that. He dies at 120, let's put it that way, okay? He's a human. He lives, the max. He lives it to the max. At the end of the day, he's a human being. What do you want to say? Learn of me. You were talking about how Moses needed to learn who he, he himself was. Yes. And we build on building blocks. I was just watching my grandchildren the other day. It's like how little ones learn how to live in the world. Right. Well, they frequently learn by the conflict that they have, which is really over their parents, but right. they don't want to say that. Right. But you watch them and they develop and then they can go out into the world and continue the building blocks. One goes on top of the other, or one uses the next, the next that uses the last. There's no question. In terms of how kids, I mean, how children learn is a very fascinating topic in general. I mean, it comes up in many, many, many contexts, such as language, which is what? How do, how do people learn language, which is it's actually amazing, you know? It is amazing if you watch, when I used to watch my kids, yeah. and, and I watch my grandchildren, how from that first relationship with the mother, how at first they can't even open their eyes because if they do, they'll drop uh, nursing. And and then all then they're starting. I, I, to me, it's just it's so fascinating. Well, it's amazing. Then they, they're not learning language, you think, from a book which gives you the, the rules. No, it's the they're, no, they're no. picking it up. We have the, I mean, that's what, that's what the linguists talk about. We don't know how people learn language, but the whole language. But it's not from the way we were in school, used to learn in school, which is the conjugations and stuff like that, which has a value in my view. That's not how people actually learn language. You learn language, you pick it up somehow, subliminally, you pick it up by hearing it and by, by speaking it, which is amazing, actually. So we really don't know. That's just language. We don't know how people learn things. Certainly our experiences are very formative. And I think that, sure, most Moses... Part of what you're saying, or here, I'm mean, here you're saying is that when Moses says, I don't know how to deal with Pharaoh, part of what God is saying is go to Pharaoh. In, in, in dealing with Pharaoh, you're going to learn how to, how, how to deal with Pharaoh. There's no way to teach it, actually. It's like you're taking a course in business school and going to business. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, can't, it can't hurt you, necessarily, but it doesn't work. I mean, it's, no one I ever met, the good ones, got it from a book. It's, it's like going to drive a car, you know what I mean? You're not going to learn it from a book. It's like going to teach. It's like most things. You don't want to teach or taking courses. I'm not adverse to the courses. But the point is, you get thrown into the classroom, and if you have guidance inside the classroom, and you have help from the, etc., and you have some ability, you will be a better teacher. That's just, you know, that's a, most of what we learn is through our experience, that maybe that's what God says to Moshe. I can't do it, I can't do it. How do you know you can't do it? You will do it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you will learn... You know, so you learn. You learn. But I think about myself. I, I was a terrible stutterer. Terrible. Still to this day, I'm a stutterer. But, but you, maybe most of you can't pick it up. The stutterers probably know. 
I would, for two years I never spoke, actually, because I couldn't speak. And then, I had to speak, because I was a teacher. And teaching in this kind of setting never bothered me, but teaching big speeches in front of people, still until today. And you learn how to actually, anybody who's a stutterer knows this, you're thinking ten steps ahead. If I, certain things make you stutter, so you have to learn how to avoid them. Someone said to me that Rabbi Salavation was also a, uh, a, uh, a stutterer. He was a pretty good speaker. And the fact is, it makes you actually a better speaker, I think. For me, it may be better for a simple reason. I could never rely upon the fancy speech. I actually felt I have, have to say something. Because I can't rely upon... Some people could just talk and they end it. When they, ten minutes later, what do they say? No one can figure it out. <laughs> I never... I always try to say something. Because I'm, I'm afraid to rely on just the, the language. Because I'm a stutterer, basically. It never, never leaves you. And maybe that's what God is... That's what Mo, I'm going to say Moshe is a stutterer. He may be a stutterer. He can't, he can't, he can't speak, he says. And what God is saying to him, on the contrary, on the contrary, that's very good. Because I don't want, I don't want, I want, I want a person, I don't want a person of words. I want a person who actually is a doer, and a doer will then speak differently. Now you still have to work, that's, that's the version over there. Here, I think saying something different to Moshe, which is, Moshe says, they don't understand what I'm, tr- what I'm trying to, to say to them. And I've been many times in that situation, by the way, not so much personally, sometimes personally. But when I go to Israel, and I have many contacts, and we're trying to build something for Trisha in Israel, the people that I deal with in Israel are people that the average American, I mean the committed American Jew, has no understanding of. They can't figure out where they're coming from. They, they, they take the tourists to Israel, they don't go to these places. And these are the most interesting people, actually. But, they, but, they, but when they're talking, someone has to translate what they're saying. I don't mean translate the words. I mean translate where they're actually coming from. What are they trying to do? It reminds me, I'll tell you more to the point, it, right now, last many years in Israel, there's a big interest in, in the Hasidic teaching. Chiefly, Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman is extremely interesting. In fact, in the summer, one of my main teachers is an Israeli. Translated the Haggadah. My Haggadah is terrific. And he teaches, gives the Gemara Shia, he teaches Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman himself is virtually uh, not, he's, he's not understandable. And Rav Nachman himself had a, had, a, had, a, had a pupil who translated all of his work. Rav Nassim. Nassim translates all of Rav Nachman. Nachman virtually writes nothing himself. Rav Nassim sees his role, it's amazing actually, his, his, his role in the world is to take the teachings of Rav Nachman and try to put them into some kind of form. Now, they're still difficult, even with the form. But that's the point. That's how he sees himself. So in other words, what Moshe is saying, I think, in chapter 6 and 7, is not, I'm not a good talker, I'm a stammerer, I'm a stutterer. It's not saying something. My message won't be understood, is what he's saying. They're not going to understand the word I'm saying. Because they, their experience and mine is so different. How can they understand what I'm even talking about? Coming from a totally different place. So God says to Moshe, in this context, you're 100% right. You can't do it. But your brother Aaron, he will, on one end, able to understand you. Maybe not to the end, but he understands you. And he's also able to convey the message in his own language. That's what they call the Navi. And that's, I think, what it means. Alright, that's what anyway I want to say about that. Yes? Uh, I know it's five minutes, but what struck me about your comparison with the two <coughs> was the first version where nobody's name is mentioned. 
that, that, you know, now that you bring it to our attention, you read this over and over again, and you know who the people are, so you don't need the names. Uh, I mean, we don't need the names, but the fact that no name is mentioned, maybe right. if you have time at some point. I'll tell you something about this. I'll tell you something interesting. I'll tell you something interesting about this. I was just thinking about the following. You know, on February 23rd, we have Yoni Grossman who's coming to teach. He's, he's very good, by the way. I was reading his book now. Actually, it's topic. I could have written that, that chapter myself. I've, I've said everything there. I said identical, actually. I like him enormously. He's, yeah, it's very worthwhile. He's excellent. To me, this guy's interesting. Yoni Grossman. Sponsored by the Shadovsky family. It's a memory of Noam Shadovsky. Noam Shadovsky was actually a great, a great friend of the Jewish Institute. Apart from being Nechi's husband. Yeah, they're, they're yeah, we'll see. You should tell people about it. He's very... Yoni Grossman is an important guy. His topic will be Abraham's effort, Abraham's servant. And here's the one to make one point about, about the servant of Abraham. Maybe Yoni will speak about this, maybe he won't. But here's, here's what I would say about it. Abraham's servant is sent by Abraham on a mission. The mission is to find a wife. Right. In the Medrash is Eliezer. The Torah actually never says the name Eliezer. He always uses the word Evid. Evid Avraham. That's how he put it. Who are you? Evid Avraham Anochi. I am Abraham's Evid. And Evid is a slave. And Evid does what the master tells him to do. The master told him what to do. To find me a wife for Isaac and to bring her back here. Because the servant says, maybe she won't want to come. What should I do? Forget it. She has to come here. Okay, fine. So he's an Evid. That's how he, he says, come to the house. He meets Rebecca, come to the house. Eat. I'm not eating until I speak first. He said, I am Abraham's Evid. Here's the point about Evid Abraham. Let me end with this point. Evid Abraham is a slave. That's what he said. That's what he calls himself. The whole point of the story, which is the longest chapter in Genesis, is this. Abraham gave him a set of commands. He goes to the well. He devises on his own this plan, how to figure out who the right woman is. And then he comes to the house and he talks to the family to convince them to permit this little girl to travel a great distance and to marry this uh, Isaac. In doing so, when he speaks to them, he changes virtually every single piece of the story. He completely turns the story upside down. Now here's the important point about that. I mean, I'm sure that Yoni will analyze it and to explain it very beautifully. I make a different point. He's actually, he's, he's Abraham's Evid. When you think of an Evid as somebody who does exactly what he's told to do, doesn't deviate one whit. He exactly carries out, he has one mission in this world, to carry out the will of his master. But in order to carry out the will of his master, he completely turns the master's directive, he actually contradicts what the master tells him. The master said, Go to, go to the land and, and bring back someone from the land. And he says, and my man said, go to the family and bring somebody back from the family. He never said that, Abraham. Then he changes all the details. The point of the Evid, the point of the story is that the, the Evid, the Evid is one who on one hand understands deeply what his master wants, but also understands that what is, the only way to fulfill what his master wants is to be totally autonomous, independent, and to, to devise his own plan, his own routine, in order to be tr- the true Evid. I would say that being God's Evid is no different. That 
we have to try to figure out what God demands of us, but everybody's got to figure out, no one can tell you how to carry out God's will, that's the truth of it. You can't. So everybody has their own mission in this world. So, it reminds me, and I've been cool with my now favorite book, the book of Esther, the Yuan Esther. It's exactly the same story. Mordechai says to Esther, you have to save the Jews. Go to the king and save the Jewish people. I can't just walk in there, I could get killed. This is your moment, you have to do this, I instruct you, I command you. Okay. Gather the Jews of Shushan, fast for three days, I will go into the king. Mordechai told Esther, go beg the king for the people. Esther says, I will do as you say, my beloved mentor, cousin, whatever, father figure. And then what does she do when she goes in? When she, when she, what does she do after she accepts the mission? She completely does the opposite of what he says. He said, go and beg the king. She doesn't beg the king. She dresses up in her royal robes and invites him to two parties. Because she understands very well. To do the right thing, to follow the will of Mordechai, I have to contradict Mordechai. Because he doesn't understand it. He's very good at it. He has the vision. He knows what has to be accomplished. But he doesn't know how to accomplish it. And that's the point I'm making about Moses and Aaron over here. That's what God said. Moses, you have the vision. You're the Elohim. But you, but you, you say, and I believe you. They're not going to understand the word I'm saying. Okay, I got it. Therefore, you need a prophet. But the, make sure the prophet understands exactly what you want. Because the great prophets understand what God is demanding, but then in their own way. In their own, they have the ability to formulate it, to articulate it in such a way that conveys the true message of God, but it also conveys the great singularity. When, you, when we study the great prophets, when you read Isaiah, or Yermiyahu, or Amos, or Micha, Hosea, Yechezkel, they're radically different one from the next. There's one Isaiah, there's no, I mean, there may be two Isaiahs or three, but there's no, he's not Yechezkel, he's not Jeremiah. He's the great consoler of Israel. He's his own language, there's nothing like it. The poetry is beyond belief. But, but he's delivering God's message, that's the point. So God has many messages in this world. That's what God says to Moses, Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. I will stop.